I shared with the men this morning a little bit this morning. So if you came to Breakfast Club, we felt God's probably stirring in our hearts. Every man that sat in that room this morning at Breakfast Club knows what I'm talking about. God is doing something unique in our nation. And we at Breakfast Club talked about this. Uh, I have not been to, I have not went to bed today till 4.30 this morning. That's something I didn't tell Breakfast Club. And it wasn't because I wasn't ready to preach. I had the outline and the notes done a week ago, and I didn't preach last week. But God would not let me go to bed. And I stood because I live here in this pulpit last night and I talked to God. And then I talked to our men this morning. And I'm here to tell you today, I don't know what it looks like in your life, but if you would lean into this today, God will awaken something that may never ever be put out again in you. Wednesday at 10 a.m. in Kentucky, small town in Kentucky, some college students have gathered at Asbury University for their weekly chapel on Wednesdays. And God has been moving in Kentucky, this small little town in Kentucky, in nonstop praise and worship since Wednesday at 10 a.m. You look it up later today, Asbury University. It's a Wesleyan holiness non-denominational type college. That's a contradiction in terms probably, but it is. Hundreds of people are traveling to this place. And the college students are mainly what's there. And they will not stop. Praising, testifying, pleading, repenting. And God is on the move. And then I think about what God did in this place a couple weeks ago. And then I think about being back there with Isaiah this morning. We were talking before we got into the water. And I've been telling him and another young man that God will talk to you in prayer. And it's not like words. It's just, for me, it's thoughts that I don't think. And I was was already dried off and I was standing there with him and he opened his little door and my door was already open. And he was, I was like, how was that? And he was like, That was awesome. I was like, I couldn't sleep last night. And he was like, I couldn't either. And I was like, oh yeah? And then I was like, you know what I told you about God talking to you? And I was like, yeah. He goes, yeah. And I go, yeah. I think he told me to not put my shoes on. Just trying to make sure that isn't me. And he was like watching me because I looked pretty insecure about it, didn't I? And then I was like, here we go. Grab my coffee and I walked out the door. My wife looks at me and goes, you have no shoes. I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, you take your shoes off today. Because there's something I need to tell people. And I need you out of the way. And so, you take that for what you take for that. And today, we talk about Nehemiah. Before we could get to why I would even go from John in the New Testament to Nehemiah, I can't even begin to tell you why in the beginning of it, but God had put this on my heart months ago that we should preach through the book of Nehemiah. Months ago. And i actually been avoiding it. I'm like, oh, maybe we'll do something different. And then, like, I don't know, like I called Lee Woodmancy, a friend of mine that was a former elder on our board of our church. He's on staff in Missouri. And he was like, well, you know, I'd recommend Nehemiah to you or a few other things. And I was like, dang it, like, why can't I get away from this book? I'm, I'm going to be honest, I haven't really even studied it. You know, but like God just, it's, it's like I told you, you, when, you know, when like the rodeo guy, you know, he rides that horse and the cow wants to go around him. And the, the cowboy keeps, I've watched too much Yellowstone. <clears throat> but he blocks the horse, or the horse is blocking the cow rather. That's why I feel like it was with Nehemiah. And so I began to reach out to, to Lee West. All right, man, here's the deal. What do you recommend about Nehemiah? I'm going to start looking into it. And guys, the timeliness of God in the divine working and around me, and it is around me, because I've been doing my plan, and God's like, you, you do that, buddy. I'll do my plan around your... I'm, I'm actually leading you, but it's neat that you think you have this choice. I'm going to keep working, though, in big, big ways. 
And I just see kingdom timing here. So I want to prime up for you, because if I just read this text, which by the way, if you have your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. You may want to go to the table of contents and find this in your Bible. And that's okay. This is Old Testament. It's, it's un, uh, unfamiliar territory for some, but it's, uh, it's before the book of Psalms. So if you open your Bible, in the very, very middle, you'd be in Psalms. And then you would go over to the left a little bit. And you want to probably go there, and then you're going to want to turn into Deuteronomy about 28 and put your thumb in two different places there. Uh, but if I just jump into reading <clears throat> this text, it won't hit you like it's hitting me. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to tell you why we should think about Nehemiah. I want to go over that. I want to go over Nehemiah 1. And then I just want to flip the quarter here at the invitation. And we'll just see whatever the Holy Spirit calls for you, heads or tails. How about that? Can we do that? Cool. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're in distress and in need of spiritual leadership? I mean, come on, man. Just not, not a show of hands, but a show of hearts this morning. This is a real word for you. The time of distress, and here's what I know, if you've lived long enough, you're either going through one right now, you've been through one, you're about to happen, or one will happen one day to you, you will be in a time of distress and in a need of spiritual leadership, and in distress is the situation that God's people are in during the time of Nehemiah. The Old Testament is a great work because it shows the humanity of these people. They want to follow God yet their hearts wander far from Him. Then they get right, and then they wander again, and then they get right, and they wander again. And God does something incredible. And you go like, well, if God did that in my life, I would never forget it. Yes, you would. And that's the point. They do too. And, but they're in their time of distress. And the book of Nehemiah shows us how God is faithful, and I want you to hear this phrase, to keep His Word. And how He is faithful to care for His people. Listen, if it is in the book, you can take it to the bank. Signed, sealed, delivered, it's yours. Wrong church. Okay, nobody's going to get excited with me. And this is especially includes the times when your perspective, the present is difficult. And, listen, the future it even appears to be grim. You ever found yourself there? Like, it stinks right now, and it seems like it's going to be stinkier later. Yesterday, we broke a pickle jar in the back of our expedition. Now my car smells like pickles, and I feel like it's going to get worse. We had teenagers in this building last night. If something feels out of place, it probably is. And took those kids home. I got in the car and it just reeked. Listen, I've been in places in my life where things stink. And you know what it's going to be like tomorrow? Worse. It just seems like it's not ending. And, and if you've lived long enough, you'll know what I mean. And so the biblical and the historical context here, we begin to understand the significance of the events in the book of Nehemiah. When you look at God's Word to the children of Israel in this place called Moab, through his servant Moses, just before the nation enters into the promised land. Now, I want you to know even more historical and biblical context. I told you to go to Deuteronomy 28. If you would, look at there if you have your Bible with you. It's okay if you don't. Deuteronomy though, chapter 28. These are interesting verses. These are blessings that God is giving to His people. And he says in Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all His commandments that I commanded you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. That's pretty cool. You can take that to the bank. But also look at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, 
Or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I commanded you today. Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, you need to know today that we are talking about Old Testament. And Old Testament, the word testament means covenant. God in the Bible, the God of the Bible, He makes covenants. They are promises that are not broken. Alright? And, and then He inspires us to make covenants, like marriages is a covenant. Unfortunately, we're not God, and we fail sometimes in our covenants. But God never fails. That's the story of the Bible in His covenants. What He says He will do, He will do. When He says He will do it, He will do it. And when He says how He will do it, He will do it. That's the whole proof of the Bible. And the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, you could think of it this way. Promises are made. Promises are made. God says, listen, if you will obey me, if you will observe what I've told you, I will bless the socks off of you. But if you don't, I will grab you by your ears. We will have come to Jesus meetings. You know what I'm talking about. A come to Jesus meeting. That's not a church term, by the way. That's a world term. My dad would even say, as an old foreman, we're going to have a come to Jesus meeting. <laughs> dad didn't even love Jesus when he was younger. You know what that was? Is when you're going to come get a cussing. And so the point here is that Moses, in Deuteronomy 28, in this sort of old covenant that God promised, now we have a better covenant, and we'll come to this, but you've got to understand this, the old covenant, promises are made, and it's an if-then, if-and-then type relationship. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. But if you do this, then I will do this. He gives man a choice. He says, you want to follow me? Follow me, man. I'll bless you. You want to come against me? It won't be so well for you. Because, not because I hate you, but because I love you. And I want this for you. And Moses foretells of exile here in Deuteronomy 28. Look at verse 45 through 52. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that He commanded you. There shall be a sign and a, a, a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness, lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. And the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle, the fruit of your ground, until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, oil, or the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they've cursed you to perish. God tells them, if you're going to do this, let me tell you how bad it's going to get. You think, boy, that's crazy. That'd probably waken me up. Keep reading though. Look at verse 64, just skipping ahead here. And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from the end of the earth to the other, and where you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you or not your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there for a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languished soul, and your lives shall hang in doubt before you night and day, and you shall be in dread and have no assurance of life. Look at 29, verses 24 through 28. The covenant being renewed in Moab. Look at verse 24. And all the nations will say, Why has the Lord done this to this land? What has caused the heat of His great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known, whom they have not allow, had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing it upon all of the curses written in this book. 
And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath. And He cast them into another land as they are of this day. And the last one. Look at 30 verses 1-5. through And when all these things come upon you and the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey the voice, His voice, in all that I've commanded you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord God will rest you, restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you to the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and He will make you prosperous, numerous, than your fathers. You know what he's saying here? This is an if-then relationship. And I know you're going to blow it. And because you blow it, life's going to get hard. But then I'm going to get your attention finally. I'm going to bring you back to me. I'm going to put you back in the place I've always wanted you to be. And I will hold you up. This is the Old Covenant, by the way. Did you know there's a New Testament in the Bible? A new covenant in the Bible? A better covenant in the Bible? But here's what I want you to know. The Old Covenant is good too. God says, you're going to disappoint me. And I know it. And I love you. And I'm going to have to correct you to get your attention. I'm going to have to do something. But when I've got your attention and you come to me, I'm going to bless you. They don't deserve it. The God of the Old Testament is still a God of of grace. And the prophets, these guys that are scary, that always say like, thus saith the Lord. You know, they feel like little like sledgehammers. You know, they're just like going through and just breaking stuff. Y'all remember, is it Jim Gallagher? He would get all that stuff up there and he would smash it and make a mess in the crowd. He'd be like, how about a watermelon? And then he smashes the watermelon. That's to me what I think of the Old Testament prophets. You read these guys? They just seem like angry dudes. Like they just left the bar and now they're going to go tell everybody about God. They just seem angry. They seem like they're calling bears out of woods. You know, they're calling down fire from heaven. Angry guys. You know what they really are? They're covenantal enforcers. Because God's people won't listen, He sends these men who are little odd characters. And by the way, they're odd because every prophet that has a message, many of them, their life acted out the message that they were also telling. Insert Hosea. When God tells him to go marry the prostitute. And she keeps leaving him. And God says, go get her. And then He says, you know what this is? This is a picture of God's people and me. I want them to stay with me and they just won't. So the first of these deportations happen here in the 8th century. We're going to go fast here now. The north, After Solomon, King Solomon in the Old Testament... Um, lots of division happens. Imagine that. God's people being divided. Hmm. And what happens is, this whole group of God's people become a northern tribe and southern tribes. Ten of the northern tribes go up there. And then there's just Judah and Benjamin. They're in the southern tribes. And the twelve tribes of Israel are divided. Alright? And so, Jacob's sons, basically, these twelve boys, they split out. The ten northern tribes, um, they are, they're called Israel. And then the southern tribe, is, or the, 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 the kingdom is Judah. Now, the northern tribe, they have wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. So it's pretty much an easy pickoff here, right? Like who's going to go, who's going to get spanked first, right? <laughs> the northern tribes. The Assyrians come through the 8th century. And, and, and they're taken out by uh, the Assyrian Empire. After this, only Judah is left. The two tribes of Israel. You have Judah 
and Benjamin. And, and, and you have these guys come on the scene. These are big prophets in your Bible. Isaiah, 66 chapters in your Bible. Big book, okay? He is a big guy on the scene. He has a big message. God is going to deliver us. You need to hold the line. You need to come back to Him. He talks about this thing called a Messiah that's going to come, an anointed one. Uh, let me just tease you and ruin the movie for you. It's Jesus. Alright? So he's talking about Jesus long before Jesus is there. I just spoiled that for you. I'm sorry. And then Jeremiah, he's this weeping prophet. He tells them, God has told me you're going to be taken away into captivity for 70 years. And then he's going to come get us back. How many people, you, you know, if you read that and you think that everybody go, whoa, 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 preacher, time out. We'll just get right with God now. We'll get right with God now. We ain't got to go away for 70 years. You know what I'm saying? Let's make a plea bargain. Get, get on the phone with God, man. See what we can do. How many people listen to him? Zero. He's a weeping prophet because he tells them the entire time, we have got to get right with God and no one wants to. Ezekiel, he's a weird dude. I mean, just, just go read Ezekiel and see if you understand that off your first reading. He's got visions that are all over the place. He's got visions that haven't even been realized yet. He's got some visions that have been realized in the New Testament. He's, got, he's just all over the place. In, in Ezekiel, these guys are testifying. In Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, you ain't going to turn there. We ain't got time for this. God tells Judah, you're going to be overthrown into captivity. Brace for impact, boys. Brace for impact. 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 8 through 10, literally document Judah being taken away and the details of the description of the gates being burned, not by the Assyrians, but by a new global power, the Babylonians. You have prophets that are telling them like this, hey, y'all think y'all got them walls and them gates? I'm about to go play airsoft next weekend, and we're going to be in this milsim, and we're going to feel cool, and I'm going to feel like I'm a DEA guy, and I'm going to go bust the cartel on drug deals. I'm looking forward to it. They have this fortress, and, I'm, and, and it's really cool when you find a fortress because you feel safe. God's people feel safe. They're like, we can't be taken by the Babylonians. There ain't nothing going to happen to us. We got these walls. And Habakkuk says, oh, hey guys, listen, they're going to make these big earth moving things. They're going to roll them right up to your city walls. They're going to send soldiers up that ramp over your wall and they're going to take you. Do you want to guess what happens? Yeah. Here they come and they take them. By the way, don't ever write Habakkuk 1.7 in a card to somebody. That's out of context. You know what this verse says? For I know the plans of what I have for you, and they're so great that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe them. That sounds like a wonderful verse to write on a card to somebody. Dear Joel, I love you. Happy birthday, brother. Habakkuk 1.7. Lee Kemp. And he'll look that up on his phone. Oh, yes. For I know the plans I have, and they're so big that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And he's going to go, yes, Lee, yes. And then if he ever reads the context, he'll realize it's a verse of judgment. God has told them, you guys need to get right. And if you don't get right, let me tell you something. I know what I have for you. And if I even told you what was going to happen, you wouldn't believe it. You know what happens? God, God sweeps their legs. Now, 70 years, they're carried off into Babylonian captivity. And after 70 years, just like God said, He raises up another pagan nation. These are godly people, by the way. These are like, just like He says, a people that you don't understand their language, their faces are hard, they're not your new little Mr. Rogers neighbor. Alright? Every time they move on. The Persian Empire sweeps in, takes over the world here, and takes over the Babylonians. By that point, point, takes on the support of this people of Israel that have been carried off into exile. And so everything that these prophets have said is happening. But this is the beginning of an awakening. They're getting excited. Wait a minute. 
Jeremiah said we would be taken back and we would get to go back to our homeland, Jerusalem, and God's going to restore us and bless us. This is it, guys. Oh, it isn't that pretty. There are five books of the Old Testament during this moment. There you have Haggai and Zechariah. Yep, name your kids that. See how that goes in kindergarten. Spell your name, son. Right? Uh, So you have these guys, and they're telling you, their message is this, God is on the move. And he says, I will do a work. Zechariah, people love to quote him. Uh, Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. I will restore a city without walls. And God's people are going, yeah, city without walls, that's awesome. That means it's so big you can't contain it. God says, I'll defend it myself. They're like, yeah, that's awesome. 70 years. 70 years go by here before you get to really this work of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were really originally one book. Then later on, somebody felt it good along the way to say, you know what, we ought to divide that up so people will watch both episodes here. We got episode one, Ezra, and then we'll have Nehemiah. They're originally just this one work. And, and then after this, this is where I want you to know where you are in your Bible. You have Malachi, not Malachi. Malachi, alright? And, and, and Malachi, he's the last prophet in the Old Testament. And what happens after Malachi from the Old Testament to the New Testament? For 400 years, God puts on some gun earmuffs and says, I will hear nothing. Goodbye. And he waits till the Roman Empire comes on the scene, takes over the world, and God says, oh, you know what? This is the greatest time right here on earth for me to come to earth. And the Bible says that God sent His Son, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, on the scene. So you got to back up. Take Jesus back up in the sky or back into Mary or whatever it's going to look like as we hit rewind. Got to go back over the 400 years. Got to go back a little bit of, of Malachi. And here's what I want you to know. Malachi, he's the last prophet. Nehemiah, what you're about to read today, is the last voices. Ezra and Nehemiah, they're not prophets. They're just men who got tired of seeing God's people get smacked around and said, I'll do something about it. God help me do this. And they did it. Their last voices of the, New Testament, of the Old Testament. Malachi's a prophet. He's the last prophet. Now, here's what I want you to know. What you're about to read in just a minute is nearly 140 years later. And the conditions are just as bad in 2 Kings chapter 25 when the first group of people got deported and their city got ransacked. 140 years later, you're about to read something here. So, let's read it. Nehemiah chapter 1. It's not very long. It's just 11 verses. The words of Nehemiah the son of Halkalah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates are destroyed by fire. Here's what you need to know. Remember I told you that walk up? They got out of captivity from the Babylonians. The Persian king Cyrus says, hey, you know what? There's a whole bunch of y'all here. Y'all can go back to your homeland if you want. Oh, you're not a country anymore because we'll smack you around if you try to be one. But if you want to go back, and you want to tune up your city or something that y'all used to have, you can do that. That's Lee's paraphrase. I'm just going to help you out here. Just like what had happened was, okay? And so they go back and they start building some things. They start building walls. And you know what? 
some snitches come along. And we all know what happens when snitches start snitching. Somebody's going to get stabbed, right? So here's the thing. Um, You see in Ezra chapter 4, verses 8 through 24, um, what you see is that 90 years later, uh, or 90 years before this moment we just read, somebody goes back and says, hey, if you let them do this, they're going, to come, they're going to come against you, king. And they're going to come against you and they're going, to, they're going to stop paying taxes. And they've actually said they're going to turn back to their God and their God's going to beat you. And I'm just going to tell you right now, you better not let them do this. You know what the king writes back and says? You're darn right. Go handle your business. So they go in there and they get their one. They're like, I need my one, right? So they walk in there and they go, here's what happened. We need our one. Oh, you ain't got our one? And they burn down the gates. Now, 90 years later, you read these verses. Now, look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Why? You've got to ask yourself, why? Nehemiah... Is a, you're going to read in here in a moment, he's a cupbearer to the king. Let me just get a little bit ahead for a second and come right back. It'll help you. Spoiler alert again. The cupbearer of the king is a really good job. You get to eat the, the food that the king eats to make sure ain't nobody poisoning him. So you're like, oh, we have a filet mignon tonight? Yeah, bring it on in here. I'll test it out real quick. Mm. Yeah, king, that filet mignon, it's good to go. They take it out. Boom, he gets the filet mignon. Where's the wine the king is getting? Huh? Bring it over here. Mmm, boy, I tell you, that's some good wine. Make sure you get it out. He likes it on this glass. Make sure you dip it in chocolate as you take it out. Okay, good deal. This guy's got a cush job. How many people pick on the cupbearer of the king? Nobody. So you walk around with a lot of swagger. Not because you're anybody, but because your job. You're like, touch me, boys. Touch me. See what happens. Touch these lips. These lips right here, they keep the king safe. I picture, I mean, this, this kinda, I, that's why I can't be the cupbearer of the king. I'd get a little rowdy about it. I'm 800 miles away. I've never been born in Jerusalem. I've been born into captivity. I have never known the temple. I've only heard stories about it. And I'm 800 miles away. And he sits down and he weeps. Why? Here's what I would tell you. Listen to Ezekiel. Remember that weird guy I told you about? Ezekiel says this. He says, Thus says the Lord God, When I gather the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their land and that I give to them to my servant Jacob. It goes on, and they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Here's what I want you to hear. They are like, listen, Ezekiel said, after exile, You were going to put us back. You were going to bless us. You were going to protect us. You were going to take care of us. And we've went back. And only thing we're getting is in Ezra chapter 4, we're getting beat down again, God. God, I'm in distress right now. Why would this happen? If everything I've been told all my life about you is true, why would this happen? I can resonate with this text. And what I want to tell you is this prayer that he prays is powerful. Look at what he says in verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, 
Even I and my Father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against You and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that You commanded Your servant Moses. Remember the word that You commanded Your servant Moses, saying, if you are are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to Me, I will keep My commandments and do them. And though your outcasts are are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make My name dwell there. Sound familiar? We've read that, haven't we? They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And that's his prayer. And then he says, now I was a cupbearer to the king. And that's where we stop today. Nehemiah, 90 years later, after Ezra chapter 4, verse 8, prays this prayer. How long have God's people been waiting for God to move to His promises? A long time. And when things seem to be going right, they're just not right. And so what we find here is this prayer, Nehemiah's prayer here, concerns the revival and the restoration of the people of God in Jerusalem. Oh, here's what I'm about to tell you. I, I promise, here's what I hope is going to happen tonight. I hope the Super Bowl is a great Super Bowl and there's some overtimes. But I'm asking you right now for a church overtime right here. Right here. Let me lean in and tell you about this. Because here's what we do. You ever heard this phrase? Well, I guess all we can do is pray. So-and-so is struggling, is on their deathbed. Well, you know, is there anything we can do? No. Well, all we can do is pray right now. Why does prayer... Get the back seat to everything. Nehemiah doesn't feel that way at all. He doesn't say, well, least I can do is pray for y'all, getting them city gates burnt down again. He stops. His heart is broken. He weeps. He mourns. He cries out. And here's what he's saying. It's the first thing that I can do is pray. It's the most best thing I can do is pray. Here's the thing I want to tell you. When prayer becomes the first option for a person, it is the indication that he or she is truly walking with and depending on God in all things. If you have a mindset of the least I can do is pray, you're missing God. Nehemiah shows this true sign of humility. And we see a glimpse of this in the New Testament, this promise that God says, listen, if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. But if you're going to be proud, I resist the proud. Here's what Nehemiah knows. This is not a moment to get proud. This is not a moment to to try to do something in your own power. This is a moment to say, God, we can't do this lest you show up and grant success to me. It's an emotional moment. And the structure of the prayer for you note takers is pretty simple. Nehemiah begins by addressing God and acknowledging God and who He is. In these verses, he just pours it out. He moves into that and he starts confessing the sins of the nation. Nobody does that anymore, do they? We get into this whole like, you know, Jesus is Republican and I hate to tell you He's not. And I'm really going to bust your bubble today if you're one of those people. He's not even American. Dang! Shots fired at church. You know what everybody wants to do about this country? Well, just, you know, we get such and such elected and blah, 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 and we'll get everything back and good. See how that works out for us over and over again. Every time we look to government to fix something, does it go real well? No, it doesn't. You know this. Instead of judging them, let's start praying and confessing their sins. Don't judge them, pray for them. And then, he starts asking God to restore His people. He, 
He starts saying, God, even my house has sinned against you. But God, we're ready for you. We need you, God. Then he moves into this. He asks God to give him success in serving the Lord towards the sin. He's not a prophet. He's a cupbearer. He's a guy with a really good job. With a lot of good 401k benefits. With a lot of travel opportunities. I don't know, you know, wherever the king goes, guess where he's going? With him. Picture like in our day and time, extravagant billionaire, rapper, somebody on their plane, and then the groupies that are with them, one of them is Nehemiah. He's like, yeah. This guy stops and says, my people, that God has said all the things He would do, are not experiencing it, and He's broken. Let me tell you the characteristics of these prayers, and we'll go quicker. First of all, Nehemiah's prayer is emotional. Everything indicates that he is a godly man who cares deeply for the reputation of this. But this is more than just reflection. He is deeply grieved. And he's taking bold actions here. And he is weeping over the fact of the welfare of God's people back in his holy city. You know what it reminds you of? Jesus. In Luke 19, when Jesus sees his city, the city he's cared about, oh, I don't know, all the way back to the Old Testament days. And he realizes he's going to die on a cross and bring about forgiveness and redemption, and he's broken because the city is a hot mess. Number two, Nehemiah's prayer is serious. You see in the text, he begins to not only pray, he begins to fast. Let me tell you what biblical fasting is. It's believers' voluntary absence from food for spiritual purposes. It's not, if it's not for spiritual purposes that you're fasting, because there's other people that fast these days, it, it, then it's, it's not biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is I'm not going to eat, and as I'm abstaining from food, I'm going to fervently continue to pray that God would move. Fasting is meant to enhance fervent prayer. It's meant to bring a note of urgency to your praying, to give force to your pleading in the court of heaven. In other words, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's making the squeaky wheel. You know what I'm talking about, that and someone's trying to talk to you, and then you go, hold on, what's the noise? What is that noise? Prayer and fasting. Desperation. Seriousness. Thirdly, Nehemiah's response is persistent. Verse 4, for days he prays. Verse 6, day and night. There's no indication of how long weeping, mourning, praying lasted for him other than it's for days and it's days and nights. And he continues this. Day and night. And he's, he's not giving up. And his perseverance in prayer is an indication of his priorities for God to do this. And he continues in his praying and fasting for days, day and night, because he's convinced only God can answer his prayers. And here's what's even more radical. We don't know how long it was, but it is not until four months later that Nehemiah gets the opportunity to take further action and sees God to begin answering his prayer. Could we ever get that kind of desperate? And could we be such devoted to being desperate that for four months, this would be our heart? How do you grow in compassion and empathy? What would you need to have the compassion that Jesus has for Jerusalem and God's plan and work. Or like Nehemiah, who's nobody. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's somebody, but he's, he's just a guy. What do you need? And here's the thing I would tell you. There's two things. One, you need a right view of God. And number two, you need a right view of yourself. These guys, every time God is moving in powerful ways, 
Everyone is alerted to the holiness of God. They're always alerted to the holiness of God, which means the set-apartness, how He's different than us, how He is not broken, how He is hope, how He is good. Every time they're used to this. And then, and then every time God's people realize, we're not. We're broken people, man. There's not anyone in here today, no matter how good they look, no matter how they worship, no matter what they say out of their mouth, there's nobody here that apart from God has it together. If you think you did, you wouldn't share about God. The Bible says, I am skipping most of my notes for you, and you're lucky. Proverbs 28, verse 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. God says this, if you cover your sin and you conceal it, I'll pull that out right there and everybody will see it. This is what you want to do, Israel? What God is telling them all along is if you will just say, God, I am undone. I am broken. My feet are on holy ground. I need you. God says, I will cover all of this with grace. I will forgive you. I will call you to me. I will bless you. You don't just write these down, but in 2 Chronicles 6, 19-21, Solomon prayed something very similar to Nehemiah. It's almost like Nehemiah read that before. He would have. That verse tethered with chapter 7, you remember chapter 7 is when God says, if my people will humble themselves and pray, I will hear their prayers from heaven and I will heal their land. You know what he's saying? God, do it again. Do it again. Nehemiah is trusting God to remember His promises. That's what he's saying, God. God, just remember who you are. I must move on. His prayer is founded on God's promises. And though Nehemiah is caring about economic conditions of his people, you need to know that Nehemiah's concern is way more than economics. Yeah, the walls are broken and it bothers him. But he is concerned about God's people exalting God and serving God. And not only that, it is about their fulfilling their purpose as a kingdom of priests to their God. The whole point of God's people in the Old Testament was, I want to bless you, and though you're just this small little group on earth, though you're not going to be impressive to everybody else, I will show how impressive we can be together because I will be your God and you will be my people and no one will be able to deal with you because I am for you. And though they can't overtake you, it'll be a testimony that you're my people and that I am the true God, the God of all gods. And though there's these other false pagan gods, I'm the real deal. I'm the one that you should know. But they hoard those blessings. <clears throat> I could go on and I could tell you that their prayer is based on identity. I could go on and I could tell you He's recalling the work of God's work of redemption. I could go on and I could tell you that his prayer was shared by others. But here's something else I want you to hear lastly today. Nehemiah's prayer reveals his faith in God. His submission to God. His dependence on God. To give him success as a servant. He leaves his luxury and he moves. Today, I want to tell you a few phrases and then we're going to flip the quarter. Prayer works. I want you to check your heart here. Don't say it's the least you can do. 
Prayer works. Prayer is work. That's why you don't want to do it. It's going to take a lot of effort. And prayer leads to work. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. There are many who need me. There are many who need you to go and to tell them about them. But here's what I want you to do. Pray that the Lord will send laborers to the harvest. I am experiencing, and I don't have time to tell you today, but this week I have tasted so much of the cup of ministry. So much of the cup of ministry I wish I could tell you. And I think, Lord, You're always out there and You're always moving. It's my prayerlessness that leads me to miss it. Don't say today the least you can do is pray about this. The only thing you can do is pray about this. And Jesus, in case you're new to this church thing, in case you're seeking to find out if God's real or not, and the Bible's true. Jesus Christ is the better Nehemiah because Jesus restores in all of us who believe in Him what is broken, and Jesus is restoring in the world right now what has been broken by sin. That's the message we carry today. And lastly, if we want to end broken things, we have to pursue the only one who is unbroken. And we have to become ambassadors of the unbroken kingdom that He has promised. The call is to rise and build that Nehemiah feels. Can I tell you today, in Kentucky, God is rising and building. In my life over the last three weeks, God is rising and building things in my life. In my path. Stuff that's so weird that if I told you, you might cock your head a minute and you go, are you sure you're Baptist? You might be Pentecostal, Pastor. And you know what I am? A child of God! That's what I am! I'm a child! I just live by simple faith. Crazy stories. My son was right with me. He was like, yeah, dad's just like that. He's just kind of, you know, we were talking to somebody in the car about it. And he was like, yeah, he's just kind of odd. I'm just telling you. Paul says, when I'm outside of myself, it's for God. And when I am acting like myself, it's for you. The church has got to get outside of itself. 